Well, good morning again and welcome to worship now, not only to those of you who are here in our traditional sanctuary, but welcome and happy Easter also to those of you who are joining us in our contemporary worship venue and also via broadcast. I'm glad that we had the chance to celebrate Easter together as one church family, even if we are in different places. I'm celebrating kind of a special Easter in my own life actually today. This is my 10th Easter at First Lutheran this year. It's kind of a special milestone for me, but I share that with you mostly because the message that I want to share with you today is one that's kind of been on my heart and on my mind, and I've wanted to share it with you for pretty much all of those 10 Easter's, and I've always thought better of it. Maybe you'll think I should have thought better of it this year too, but it goes back about 10 years for me, and in, other, in another sense, actually, the message that I want to share with you today goes back almost 20 years for me. It goes back to a time when I was a college student, and I had been a Christian for about three or four years at this point. I had mostly in my family been raised in church for the most part, but hadn't really ever been important to me. Christianity wasn't. It was just something that my family did until God, got, God really got a hold of my life kind of in my late teen years. And, and three or four years later, I, I found myself in college, and that was the first time in my life that I began to have serious conversations with people who had very serious and pointed questions about the truth of what I believed, who were very critical about the truth of Christianity. And I not only was talking to people like that, but I also began to read some very learned and intelligent books that were critical of the Christian faith. And this kind of went on for some period of time. And one in particular actually stands out for me that I remember reading a book that made the argument that especially the stories, not, not only the whole life of Jesus, but especially the stories of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection are not really based on truth. They're not based on reality or what happened. They're based on what the disciples of Jesus wished had happened or hoped would happen or maybe in some cases thought had happened. And so I read that book. I remember that experience very clearly. I can remember where I was when I was reading it and where I was in the hours after I would read it. It was a really powerful time in my life. It raised a lot of questions for me, which are good, by the way. I think questions are really important. You don't learn and grow very much without questions. But those questions in the circumstances of my life also led me into a period of very serious doubt. When I look back over the about 20 years between now and then, I look back at that and it, is, it stands out to me as a very, very dark period of my life. I remember emotionally, spiritually how I felt at that time. And I think one of the reasons that it got to that level for me was that I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know how to deal with those questions and and I didn't really have anybody who was in my life that I could turn to at that point who could kind of walk through that with me and help me with that. And I'm telling you about that right now because I know that some of you are in that place right now. And some of you have been in that place before. And I want you to know, first of all, that I've been where you are. Or I've been where you've been. I know what that's like. I've walked through that. And I also want to, while you're here this morning, share with you some of the things that I've learned through that time. For those of you who have questions and who think about this and wonder if that could possibly be true, I want to share with you that as crazy as the idea sounds that we're here on Easter to celebrate that a dead person is alive. Because, I mean, have you ever seen that anywhere else? As crazy as that sounds, I don't want to pretend it's not crazy because it is. In fact, I hope that we realize it's really crazy. But I want to help you know that you don't have to be crazy to believe it. There's really good reason to believe that this is true. Now, I know that some of you are here in this place and you've not gone through a period like that. You don't have those questions. You've not experienced that doubt. And if that's the case for you, I celebrate that with you. I think that's a gift. But I also know there are people in your life who have experienced that. And maybe the time that we spend together this morning can equip you to 
Be someone who's in their life for them in kind of the way that I didn't have anybody when I was going through that. And you know, as we're raising this question about the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, as we come here on Easter, can we actually believe that that happened? I just think we ought to acknowledge the level, the stakes on the question that we're asking. Because this is not one of those things that sort of like we can just like get along to go along. We just, we agree to disagree. You know, the Christians disagree about stuff. There are different bodies of Christians around the world. There's a Catholic church right over there. There's a Methodist church right over there. A Presbyterian church up there. Baptist churches around the area. Christians disagree about some stuff. And we, we work on that. And I hope that we'll all come to some unified understanding on all these things. I, I don't know if that's going to happen on this side of eternity. But we can live with that. But the resurrection of Jesus is not one of those things. Have you ever heard somebody say, don't put all your eggs in one basket? Have you heard somebody say, that's smart not to put all your eggs in one basket? Christians are not smart people because all of our eggs are in this basket. All of our eggs are in the resurrection basket. And do you know who put them there? Jesus put them there. It was Jesus who walked around this world saying to people, follow me. I'm going to show you the way to life. I'm going to show you the way that God Almighty wants you to live your life. No, wait, scratch that. I'm going to show you God, right? Jesus is the one who went around saying, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to God but by me. And one time, one of his disciples came to him and said, could you show us the Father? Could you show us God? And I'm really sympathetic to that, you know? I don't know, you don't have to raise your hand to admit this, but a lot of us at one time or other have gone, God, couldn't you just show us like for one second an explosion in the corner or something? Just show us? Somebody comes to Jesus and says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, if you've ever read the Bible before or if you've read it several times or read passages, you heard this stuff, you get too comfortable with that. Just imagine if somebody, one of us, was having doubts. And we're like, man, I wish that I could just see God. And maybe you came to your pastor and you came and you saw me. And we were talking about this and, and you said, I wish I could just see God. And that would, that would strengthen up my faith an awful lot. And I said, oh, we can fix that. If you've seen me, you've seen God. No. Like, what's the, what's the, the radius on the lightning strike that you would want to step back from? <laughs> At that moment, we get you too used to that. And if Jesus said all that stuff, and then he went and got himself killed, and he just stayed dead like everybody else, I don't think you really have to deal with that. We can just consign Jesus to the pages of history as one more, more or less ego-driven maniac, and there are a lot of them in history, and maybe love your neighbor as yourself is still a pretty good idea, but you don't have to deal with all the rest of that stuff. However, if God raised him from the dead, if God raised from the dead the person who said, I'm the light of the world, and who invited people to come and see God in him, then we got to deal with that. Then, then you want to be on his side. You want to be in on whatever deal it is he's offering. You want in on that deal. And you don't want to be out on that deal because Easter is everything. All of our eggs are in this basket, and it's Jesus who put them there. And so what I'd like to do with you this morning is encounter this question honestly. We said he is risen. I'd like to ask you the question about the indeed part. Has he indeed been risen? Why can we believe that? When we come here to church and celebrate that, some of you hung your coats up out on the coat racks. I'm so sorry, by the way, we're still wearing coats at this point of the year on Easter. I think we should pray about that. So when you hung your coats up out there, there was not a place that said coat check, brain check at the door. We want to think about this with our minds open and not be dumb. We want to be smart Christians 
about this. So if you have your study guide, your, if your worship bulletin is, is nearby you, there's a study guide in there. I put a couple of points on the front to help you follow along with what I want to say to you today. And if you're anything like me, you'll probably think of some stuff yourself that you want to think about again later. And if you're anything like me, you'll totally forget it as soon as the worship service is over. So take some notes, write that down, and think about that again later. I've got two points that I want to talk to you about today to hopefully help with this. And they sound real similar, but they're pretty different. I hope they'll help you remember. The first one is this. They would not have made this up. They would not have made this up. Now, here's, here's why I'm trying to say that. That's not just an assertion. It's not just my opinion. Here's why I think that. Now, I believe people can make up stories. I believe people can tell lies. I believe people can persuade themselves and other people of stuff that just isn't so. But when that happens, you got to have an angle. you got to have a motive. It's got to accomplish something for you that you wanted to have happen. And the first Christians, the disciples of Jesus who wrote this stuff down, they didn't have an angle. There's no motive for them to have done this. They shed their blood for this stuff. They got persecuted for this stuff. They didn't gain anything from this. They lost everything from this. They lost their lives. They shed their blood from this. They got thrown out of the synagogues, the communities that they were a part of. It didn't gain them wealth or power. It didn't gain them safety or security, to be sure. It didn't benefit their families. Some of the people who wrote this stuff down were themselves later crucified for this. Some of them had their heads cut off for this. Now look, again, like I said, I understand people can make up stories. I could probably make up a story myself, but right about the time someone was going to cut my head off for it, that'd be a very clarifying experience for me. Some of the disciples of Jesus had to watch their children die for the stories that they were telling. I'm a dad. I tell stories to my kids. A lot of them I make up. Right about the time one of those stories was going to get my children killed, you better bet I'd be seeing things a little bit differently all of a sudden. They did not stand to gain from this. They stood to lose from this. They would not have made this up. It took their lives in completely the wrong direction for me to believe that they were making this stuff up to benefit themselves. But it's not only that it took their lives in kind of the wrong practical direction. When you stop and think about it for a second, you realize it took their faith, it took their religion in the wrong direction to believe that they made this up. Let me give you two examples. The first one is, this, is, is resurrection. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but most first century Jewish people already believed in resurrection before they ever met Jesus. It's a well-established historical fact of ancient Jewish religion. They believed in resurrection. What they believed about resurrection is that they believed that one day, at the last day, God would raise from the dead all of his faithful people, all the Israelites who died in the covenant, he would raise them all up again from the dead and reconstitute one glorious, mighty Israel again at the last day. And he would usher in the world to come. That's what they believed about resurrection. And now, right around the death of Jesus, right around Good Friday and the very first Easter, a whole group of these people, not just one crazy person who kind of went off the rails, but a whole movement of people started to say that God had raised one man from the dead. And they had to reimagine and rethink what that could possibly mean for the resurrection of anybody or everybody else. And so they, they, were, they believed this about resurrection, moving in this direction, and then all of a sudden, whoop, they went over here and believed something totally different. They had to rethink or reimagine their most cherished, most deeply held, long-held, generationally held beliefs about what happens after death. And sociological studies of religion will show you that people rarely do that spontaneously. Something massive 
has to happen to cause that kind of rethinking. And not only did they do that with resurrection, but they also did it with their picture of God. Think about this for a second. If there's one thing that first century Jewish people believed about God, it's that there is a God and we're not him. God is God and human beings are human beings and God is not a human being. And one of the things that, it, that ancient Jews thought most ridiculous and reprehensible and repulsive about pagan religions, about Greek and Roman religions or Babylonian religions, is that they worshipped people and animals and statues of them. There, there's passages in the Bible and in ancient Jewish literature where they would make fun of other religions for this. That's probably not very kind, but it's true. It's in the historical record. They would say, you took this block of wood and you carved it into the shape of a reptile or a person or whatever, and then you put it in your temple and you bowed down and made offerings to it and you worshipped it when you just carved it like 10 minutes ago. How does that make sense? And they thought that was ridiculous and they thought it was repulsive. And it's blasphemy, as a matter of fact. They thought of it as blasphemy, which is a strong, strong sin with a strong emotional reactions to that. There are still places in the world today where you can get yourself in a lot of physical trouble for the sin of blasphemy. And now, in that context, the Christians write down this story about the resurrected Jesus who appears to the disciple Thomas. And some people call him Doubting Thomas. I think that's totally unfair. Can we agree on thinking Thomas today? Would that be okay? He appears to thinking Thomas, and Thomas has said, I don't believe that. I can't. He's told the other disciples, I can't believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Unless I see it with my own two eyes and I touch the wounds on his hands and his feet, I will not believe it. Like a little bit later, Jesus appears in front of Thomas. And he says, here they are, the wounds in my hands and in my feet. Just see and believe, Thomas. And I don't know if you've read this story before or not. If you've ever read it before, do you remember what Thomas said to Jesus in that moment? Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God? Seriously? And all the rest of the first century Jewish people who were with him started to write this down approvingly like it was a good idea? And the New Testament is full of references to Jesus that are just like this. They believed one thing about God. It was going in this direction. And if they were going to make something up, they maybe could have kept on going in this direction. But all of a sudden, whoo, it goes way over here in the completely wrong direction. Sociological studies of religion will tell us that doesn't just happen spontaneously. Something massive has to happen to cause not one crazy person who went off the rails, but a whole movement of them to just suddenly reimagine their most fundamental convictions about the identity of God that their people have held for like thousands of years and what they believe about resurrection. All of a sudden, they rethink all that. And they do it so they can get themselves killed. See, even in general, before we even read the details of the resurrection story in general, I just want to pause for a second and say we can account for these stories in basically two different ways. There's kind of two different groups of theories that you could, make, that you could come up with to account for this. On the one hand, you could say that these are basically fictional stories. Maybe there's some grain of the kernel of truth back there that got evolved somehow, but they're basically fictional stories written down by their authors to advance their agenda in some way, and it could be a variety of ways. Or you can account for this evidence, you can account for these phenomena by saying these are basically factual stories written down because it's basically the way that it happened. This is a much simpler theory, of course. My problem with this theory is that it takes real intellectual stretching even to account for the general direction of the movement of what happened to these people and what they started to say and why they said it. I have not yet encountered a satisfactory and an intellectually satisfactory explanation 
for how this would have come about and how it would have given rise to the things that historically we know came about next. But let's turn our minds now, anyway, to the details of the resurrection story, okay? So this is going to be the second point on your outline. The second point there, same words as the first, different emphasis. They would not have made this up. They would not have made this up. Okay, here's, here's the difference. Even if they would have made up some stories about Jesus that were a little bit wild, and as I said, I still have no idea why they would have done that, and I don't think anybody's really explained why they've done that. I didn't only read that one book in college about this. I'm a student of this material, and I can't find a good reason for them to have made this stuff up. But even if you would grant for a second that they had made this stuff up, they would not have made this up. See, the, the sort of counter theory here, the, the way of accounting for the resurrection stories, if you don't think that they're basically factual, is to say that they are not a reflection of reality, but they are a reflection of hope. Right? They're what the disciples hoped had happened. Maybe even after Jesus was killed, one of the Christians who had, or one of the disciples of Jesus, in his or her emotional distress, had a dream about Jesus being alive again. And they told their other friends, and they were like, that's a great dream. I want to dream that too. And they start telling that story. And, and over a period of years, it kind of evolves. And eventually people forget that it was a dream, and they start putting details to it. And eventually there's an empty tomb and a stone rolled away and guards. And, and people who are critical, scholars who are critical of the truth of the resurrection stories, they say that those stories came into their kind of final form, the form that we read today, somewhere around 70 A.D. or 80, maybe even 90, 100 A.D., or later, and that over that period, that was a period of Christian reflection, where they wrote stories that reflected what they hoped were true. You know, I said, you know what, people would say, you know, they're just trying to deal with the universal problem of human death, what happens to us when we die, and so they said, well, hopefully there's life after death, let's write a story about that, and hopefully this all happened by the plan of God, it's more comfortable for me to believe that God is in control somehow, so I'll write that story. And here's what I want to tell you, I think that sort of scenario is entirely plausible, I think that could happen. I think people could write stories like that. And I, I bet people have written stories like that. What I think is hard to believe is that these particular stories came from a process like that. If you had a process like that, you'd end up with a different result than what we have. The stories that we have, they just don't give evidence of being things that are the product of years and years of Christian reflection. Because we have other things that look like that and we know how that turns out. These stories bear the marks much more of being primitive stories of what they saw and what they wrote down and what they regarded as holy, and they stopped changing it because, well, that's what happened. Let me give you some examples to illustrate my point here. The first one is this. I don't know if you noticed this or not in the gospel reading that we had today or if you've ever read any of the other gospels or stories of Jesus' resurrection, but not one single time in any of the stories of Jesus' resurrection in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John do those stories ever say anything about eternal life or resurrection for Christians? They just say that Jesus was raised from the dead, and they don't make any connections to what that means for us. So all I'm saying is, is that if you have a theory that says they, these stories developed over a period of a number of decades to comfort us with the idea that we would have life after death, don't you think somewhere in that story somebody should have said, we have life after death? But that's not how these stories develop. They just report some unusual details about where things were setting and what they saw, but they never get around to the reflection on what it means for us. I'm not saying people don't make up stories. I'm just saying when you make up a story, you don't make this up. But the most powerful example of that for me is the presence of the women in all of the gospel stories of Jesus' resurrection. All four gospel stories say that the very first witnesses to the empty tomb 
and the very first witnesses to the living Jesus outside the tomb were women. Now I'm going to ask you a question here, and don't answer this question out loud because you'll probably get in trouble if you do, but do you know what the testimony of a woman was worth in the first century? Nothing. And I'm probably overestimating the value at this point. Women weren't even allowed to testify in courts of law in the first century because their testimony was regarded as being that unreliable. Now please don't attack me for this. I wish that weren't the case, but it is historically the case. And we have other reports of the resurrection of Jesus, not from 70, 80, 90, 100 AD, not even from 60, but already from the early 50s, where there are stories about the resurrection of Jesus that look different than this. And one of them is written in the New Testament in the book of 1 Corinthians, because there was a Christian community that had formed in the ancient city of Corinth. They had heard about Jesus, and they had realized that he is indeed the Lord, and they had formed a community that was obedient and loyal to him and put their hopes in him. But over a period of time, they began to doubt I have great sympathy for the Christians at Corinth. They were full of doubt over this. And they wrote to their pastor, whose name we now call the Apostle Paul or St. Paul. And they sent Paul a letter that said, we we don't believe that dead people get raised. The the dead are not raised. We've seen a lot of people die. None of them have been raised yet. I don't think we believe that Jesus has been raised. And Paul wrote back to them, and he gave them a testimony that had been handed down to him already years earlier, years before 50 A.D., And he said Jesus was raised and he appeared to people. We have eyewitnesses. He appeared to Cephas, who's also sometimes called Peter. Peter and Cephas are the same guy. He appeared to the 12, the 12 disciples. He appeared to over 500 other people, some of whom have fallen asleep or died, but many of whom are still alive. Here's a tip for you. If you ever need to make up a story and convince people of something that's a lie, but you want them to believe it, don't refer them to 500 eyewitnesses who know it's not true. Okay, The cat will get out of the bag. Paul says, 500 eyewitnesses, and last of all, he appeared to me also. But who's missing from that story? The women, right? And the reason that they, did, they stopped telling the story with the women in it is, unfortunately, nobody cared. Nobody was persuaded by that. I think that's terrible. I wish that weren't the case. I'd love to know what was going on in their lives after they saw Jesus raised from the dead. But here we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all say in their primitive storytelling that did not take 40 or 50 years to edit and get right that the women were the first witnesses to the tomb. And I'm sorry, but you just don't make that up. There's just no satisfactory explanation for making up that story. I believe people can make up stories. You just wouldn't make this up. And you know what else is true about that? You read these four gospel accounts of the women at the tomb, and they don't all agree on how many women went there that morning. Now, I think that's interesting. And a lot of people who who haven't thought about it for very long, the first reaction is to say, aha, the stories contradict themselves. They can't be true. But think about that for just a minute longer. Imagine for a second that there was a car accident right down here at the intersection of Highway 61 and County Road, a multi-car accident. And you needed to give a report or you needed to know what really happened, but you weren't there. But four people wrote down what they saw had happened there. And they wrote down these reports for you, and they gave them to you. They were half a page long, maybe a page, and you read them. You went down and sat at your desk, and you read through the different eyewitness accounts of this. And after, when you started to read the second one, you realized it. And you read the third one, and you were insulted. And you read the fourth one, and you threw it against the wall, because they were all exactly the same. Word for word, every detail, same order. If you got something like that, and you were in that situation, would you believe those testimonies? You're a lot more trusting than I am, if you would. Because that, to me, would be certain evidence that they had conspired together. 
They had colluded together to falsify their testimony. They had gotten their story straight, if you will, and I would know that they were trying to hide something from me. I would know that they were trying to convince me of something that wasn't true, and I don't know yet what was in it for them, but something was in it for them, and they were trying to trick me. On the other hand, if I got these four testimonies, and they were all independent of one another, and they agreed in the basic narrative of the events, and the most important things were there, but they disagreed in some of the details, and most importantly, they, disagree, they, they, they agreed in reporting the details that were most embarrassing to them, most incriminating for them, most damaging for their own credibility and their own case, then I would read those testimonies and go, wow, that's probably authentic. The best explanation for these testimonies is that that's what they saw. The best explanation for the gospel accounts that we have is that it happened like that, is that they're writing down what they know to be true. But you know what's really the most persuasive to me about this? Alongside all kinds of good, critical, historical thinking, I think the most persuasive thing to me is that those who were there and knew better they began to live like it was true. They began to live for it. They put their eggs in this basket. They staked their lives on it. Their lives were characterized by one set of faith and practice and attitudes, and then all of a sudden, they started living a whole different way. They started to live with tremendous courage and with radical, sacrificial generosity and with tremendous boldness. And they overcame together as a people, they overcame age-old ethnic and racial prejudice, which was not even taking the very first baby steps toward being overcome yet. And then all of a sudden they start to live together in a community the likes of which the world had never seen before. Something incredible happened to them and they were willing to put their eggs in this basket because they knew that it had a very solid bottom. That's persuasive to me. And I would like to close today by sharing with you a story about a way that I see this happening in our world, in our lives, still today. And I brought something along to help me with this story. This little table right here has on it a carton with some Easter eggs in it. Can you all see that Easter egg right there? You know how you can know that I didn't dye this Easter egg? It's cute. It's pretty. It's well done. I got a couple more in here. My kids dyed these Easter eggs. Here's another one. If I had dyed these, they'd be all brown and ugly. That's how they would look like. These are Easter eggs, right? Do you guys dye Easter eggs in your house? Raise your hand. You ever do Easter eggs? Isn't that awesome? Easter eggs. All right, great tradition. I want to show you another egg. Here is another egg right here. This is a plain white chicken egg. Bought it at the store yesterday. I would like to close by telling you why I believe this is also an Easter egg. Here's why. Some of you know that our church is committed to serving the people of Haiti in Jesus' name alongside our mission partners in Haiti at Mission of Hope. And one of the things that we have learned over the years of our involvement there and have been told by others is that one of the things that is most crippling, one of the most crippling problems in Haiti is the lack of hope. Because when you have no hope for tomorrow, you tend to destroy tomorrow in the process. Now just about two weeks ago, the president of Mission of Hope, Brad Johnson, who's become a friend of mine now over the years, was here in our church and he was preaching in our worship services two weeks ago. And my family and I got to spend the weekend or a lot of the weekend with him and his daughter who was traveling with him. And Brad shared with me something that he shared with me before actually. He said that the, the country of Haiti, which has like eight or nine million people in it, it's a small country on one third of an island in the Caribbean. The country of Haiti imports about one million chicken eggs. They import about a million eggs every day from the Dominican Republic. 
Now, the Dominican is on the same island. It's the other country on this island. And from where Mission of Hope is and about where Port-au-Prince is, it's only like 20 or 30 miles to the Dominican Republic. Same island. They have the same chickens running around all over the island. And some of you who have been on our mission teams to Haiti, you've seen these chickens running around. But nobody in Haiti is cultivating chickens for their eggs or collecting the eggs, and that's because they don't believe in tomorrow. Because on the ground, in a real-world scenario, if you are a Haitian mother or father, and your kids are crying because their stomachs are empty and they haven't eaten in three days, and you're sitting in your ramshackle dwelling and you look out the hole in the, what passes for a wall, the hole that passes for a window, and you know that nobody cares about you, and you know that nobody's coming to help you, and there's no tomorrow, and you see a chicken outside your house. You are not thinking about omelets in the morning. You are putting chicken on the menu tonight. And that's how it goes down. But our friends at Mission of Hope, they see this differently. Because they believe, as we do, that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And so they believe there is a tomorrow, and not only a literal tomorrow 24 hours from right now, but there is a permanent tomorrow. There is a permanent tomorrow that is unshakable because God has established it in victory over the power of sin and the power of death in our world. He has made a permanent tomorrow, and once you know that, your todays can never be the same again. You will start telling the story, but pretty soon you will find yourself putting your eggs in this basket because it will not leave you alone anymore. And so our friends at Mission of Hope in Haiti together with partner in partnership with our congregation and other churches in North America and increasingly in partnership with the church in Haiti, they have begun, or they are about to begin, microfinancing chickens to people in Haiti who will eat their eggs today and also tomorrow and also next week and on into as many tomorrows as God should give us. And they will even start taking these eggs to market so they can sell some of them and begin to make a little bit of a positive economic difference in their lives right here. And so... Because of that, I am telling you that this egg right here, which has no pretty pastel colors on it whatsoever, is an Easter egg. Because it is full, if I would break this egg right here, I will show you that it is full of protein and fat and iron. And I hope that you will have eyes to see that it is also full of hope and life. And the reason that it, the way that it comes to be full of hope and life is because just like this egg right here, the tomb was empty. That's why there's hope in this world. Because, my friends, Jesus is alive. He's alive. The women went to the tomb and he wasn't there anymore. The stone was rolled away. He wasn't there. And they saw him and they went and they told the story to the other male disciples. And sooner or later, the men eventually got enough courage that they began to tell other people. And the other people told other people. And they started living and telling the story. And we are still living. And we are still telling that story right here today. And the reason for that is that they rolled the stone away from the tomb. And the tomb was as empty as a swimming pool in January because Jesus is alive. And we got to deal with that. We got to deal with that now. Because you and I and everybody else are going to put our eggs in some basket. It's inevitable. We're going to do it. We are going to stake our lives on something. And maybe some of you came in here today. I know some of you did. Come in here today with your eggs already in the Easter basket. 
And so I hope that the Easter story today puts wind in your sails. I hope it lifts your heart and strengthens your soul. I hope that your response to the resurrection of Jesus and the rest of this worship service is to praise God for his victory over the grave and over the power of sin in our lives. And furthermore, I hope the story of Easter will shove a little steel up all of our spines so that we will start to live with the courage and the generosity and the boldness and the sacrifice and the commitment that was characteristic of the very first Christians who knew exactly what they were talking about and who staked their lives on this thing. But I also know that some of you came in here today in a different place. I know that some of you came in here today with a lot of doubts about this whole thing. We're here today maybe because your family wanted you to come, because it's Easter and you ought to come because you want a free ticket to ham after the, after the church service today. I understand. And I understand how that feels because I have been there. And I want you to know that I have been where you are. And I have been where you have been and I have asked those questions. And my hope is that today can be a new day for you. My hope is that the Easter story, the good news, the truth of Jesus' resurrection can fill you with a hope that simply cannot be put out. I hope that it will fill you with a joy that when the challenges in life get real high, when the hills that we climb get real steep, that your joy does not go out because you know what? Jesus is alive. What else are they going to do to you? I hope it will fill you with joy. I hope that it will give you life, that it will make you more alive than you otherwise could ever be because it has done that to me. And I hope that it will do that for you and that you will receive this gift of life so that one day when they lay you in your tomb, that you will know already on your way there that you're going to be raised again also because Jesus has been raised, so shall we also be raised with him. Look, it's crazy. I know. He is dead. He was a dead man. And he was raised again from the dead. It's crazy. It's crazy good. And you don't have to be crazy to believe it. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is really, really good. But I know that whatever happens in our lives, I know that for the, for the Spirit of God to be knocking at the door of your heart, and that goes on and on, and yet your brain is going, but hey, don't leave me behind. I know that for this to happen in any of our lives, this does not happen by our own power. It happens by the power of God at work in us. And so I'd like to close this time of reflection on God's word in prayer that God's power would work in us. Let's pray. God, we worship you. We worship you because you have raised Jesus from the dead. Because death does not have the final word over us and it does not have the final word over your creation. The power of sin that divides us, hurts us, kills us, oppresses us that you're beating it back, that you're rolling it back, that you have begun your new creation among us. Not even death is certain anymore. And God, I pray that by your spirit you would work in our hearts to fill us with hope. And I pray that you would work in our minds to fill us with knowledge of the truth. And that you would fill us with courage and hope and boldness and generosity and commitment. That you would take this so that it's not even just a story that we can believe is factually true, but a story Lord, that we would put our eggs in that basket. That you would call us to yourself and fill us with faith. God, build in us here in this place. Let your light so shine here in this community. Build a people, the likes of which the world rarely sees anymore. Not for us, but for you. For the hope and salvation of your world. We say yes to you. And give our lives into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.